when we started, the goal was again, show everything. And that meant everything like good, like I said, good, bad, ugly. And the first medium we chose was Instagram because that at the time in 2018 was pretty hot. And we wanted to use that as a day-to-day storytelling. So show it on the stories and then show it on, you know, IG television when that came out for longer former content. Then we entered into LinkedIn and podcast. We wanted to touch into more of the corporate world. The podcast was a place to literally meet the three of us, be my two partners and just sit down and have a real conversation for an hour about anything. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Jake Carls, co-founder and rainmaker at Midday Squares, about their game-changing, show-everything style of brand marketing and how he and his co-founders are committed to staying independent and true to themselves for the long haul. My name is Jake Carls, and I'm one of the co-founders of Midday Squares. We like to call ourselves the first functional chocolate bar. So what that means is, imagine you took a chocolate bar, you took a protein bar, you made love with the two, but you got rid of all the junk in protein bars, the chalky taste, the artificial flavors, the chemicals, all the, the, in my opinion, the garbage, and kept it on the chocolate bar side. When we start this business, we realized that chocolate is a massive industry. And what we focused on was, can we become a real chocolate bar but yet still have functionality. So functionalities that we have in our bars are, you know, it keeps you full for a couple hours, three to four hours, and it gives you that natural boost of energy while being a very clean label, very clean ingredients, better for you and tastes fucking delicious. We're a chocolate manufacturer, but also a media company. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And that's a part of why I'm super excited to share your story with the Evolve community is because that's how I found out about you is just People talk about your how you just show your personalities online and put it all out there. And we'll dive into that in a little bit more in a second because I think that's super cool. First, let's just talk about the why behind Midday Squares. So you talked about the being the first functional chocolate bar. And I, I've seen some of your posts on social media, like with the goal of being kind of on the top of the chocolate pyramid at some point. So, but why? Like, why does the world need Midday Squares on the top of that pyramid? So for the last 50 years, 60, maybe 70 years, the CPG world, especially in snacking, has been dominated by maybe five to seven massive companies, you know, the ones that we all know today. And what I've seen over the last decade or last 15 years was a lot of amazing entrepreneurs starting brands that have better for you products that are innovative, fun, but the way they build them is to flip them in three to five years to these incumbent brands, these massive brands, right? So it becomes this cycle where we just get the bigger ones bigger and bigger and bigger. And yet they lack, once they're in there, the soul is taken away. What everyone loved, what everyone loved about the business, the personality, the foundation, the, the raison d'etre, the reason why is gone. So when my partners and I came together, who are my family members as well, but we're not partners because we're family and we'll get into that later. But we chose to build chocolate because A, we love chocolate. B, we found a gap in the space where people wanted real chocolate, 
that also had a little bit more to chocolate and no one in the space was doing it. There was protein bars, there were chocolate bars, there were candy bars, but there was nothing functional that actually tasted good. So that was one thing we saw a white space within the space. But number two, we want to build a modern day Hershey. We want to be the next Hershey's, but do it in today's world. So if Hershey's were to start in 2022, they would actually look more like midday squares. They wouldn't look like the way they look and act the way they act because that no longer creates a, a relatability or a connectivity to the modern day consumer. You know, they don't innovate products that are better for you in the sense. They don't innovate products that we actually want and they don't innovate the way that they, they speak to their consumers. I'm still a big fan of Hershey's. Don't get me wrong, but there needs to be a new incumbent brand, an insurgent brand that's going to the top. And for us, we are so focused on longevity and foundational side of this business that we even decided to build our own factory, our own chocolate factories in the food space. I'm sure you know, Gage, is that most brands go to co-packers. They go to co-manufacturers. They third-party their manufacturing. Their core competency is actually third-party, which to me doesn't make sense. But we decided to invest millions of dollars, even though we didn't have it, into a facility where we could automate our line and then start to build more factories and more. And the, what this does is everything's controlled vertically into our own system. For us, we are trying to become the next biggest chocolate snacking company while being unapologetically ourselves, doing it our way, writing our own playbook, not following the typical CPG playbook, not following the way you have to behave. If I want to show up in a bathing suit to work, I'm showing up in a fucking bathing suit. If my team wants to come in and blast music all day, they're going to go do that. And I think that that is the future of the way that the next generation wants to come in and be part of a career. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the kind of way you talk about it. Like if Hershey's were to start today, what would they look like? Because exactly to your point, when you're like a hundred year old company, you might slowly evolve over time, but it's a big organization with lots of people, lots of legacy, and you, you don't want to squash your legacy or, or upset your existing customers or anything else like that. But if you if any company got the chance to just wipe the slate clean and start over, what would they launch like? And I love the idea of you just kind of being the modern kind of evolved chocolate company and bringing some of that functionality trend to it as well. Well, think about it, Gage. It's very simple. Like, you know, you go to a massive corporation, they've done amazing things. Don't get me wrong. Hershey's, Mondelez, General Mills, they've done Kellogg's, they've done great things. However, what's happening in those, in those organizations is that there's a fear of creativity. There's a fear of doing bold things because you're worried about the corporate ladder. You know, who's going up next? Who's going to judge you? Are you going to get fired? Are you going to do this? So this lack of creativity limits this cool innovation, both on the consumer side of how you interact and build community, but also on the innovation of, of the products. So for us, we have this amazing advantage to go out there and actually build a new age conglomerate as long as we're well-funded throughout the process. And I'm not talking about venture money just dumping in and wanting their three to five years out. I'm talking about longevity money to actually grow and build a, a corporation where we print dollars that we could reinvest in this business and keep growing to do crazy things for our community. Like I think a brand that did it really well, two brands that have done this really well is Elon Musk's brands. I think he spent a lot of time focusing and building a brand, like actual moment where people feel something. They feel not just from the electric cars that he makes, but they want to be part of it. They want to be part of this journey. They want to, they want to make the impact. And then Virgin Brands. I think Richard Branson being a, a character himself has built brands that people will become obsessive with, right? And I just feel like food and beverage, they just haven't figured it out yet. People are doing amazing things in there. I just think people haven't figured it out on the biggest, the global level. I think there's some amazing smaller brands doing amazing things and making huge impact. But I think that someone needs to come in 
and show the world that you could win by being you. Yeah, I love that. And again, that is a big part of how y'all stand out is definitely just by being you. Speaking of you all, like I know that you mentioned earlier that it's a family business, but you're not partners because you're family. But let's talk about that a little bit first. Um, Based on your website, it sounds like Leslie kind of initially started this concept, but then quickly pulled you and and other family members in. So talk about the makeup of the team and how you got the nickname, The Rover. (laughs) So yeah, so my sister, is her name's Leslie. She is our CEO, but she also was the creator of this product. So what happened was in 2017, she was basically making a version of the Midday Square for fun from her husband, my brother-in-law, who's our other partner, because he loved chocolate. He was eating those candy bars in the afternoon because he craved it every day. And he'd get these crashes, like these major crashes, sugar crashes, and his stomach would hurt. So what she ended up doing is saying, I'm a foodie. I can make you something that's better for you, that's made with real foods that are coming from you know good sources, etc., And it still tastes good. So he took it to his office. She made it and everyone freaked out. Everyone was in love with this chocolate snack. They're like, this is, we need this every day. But she was in the fashion world at the time. She had a fashion business and she ended up quitting on that business. She ended up, you know, stopping to do it because of many reasons, but she ended up looking for her next venture. And my brother-in-law ended up selling out of his software business and he had a two-year non-compete and they always want to work together on something. They always want to do some business together and they didn't know what to do, but they're both foodies at heart. And one day it clicked in my brother-in-law's head, holy shit, let's use that chocolate snack you were making and let's launch that. He got some data from like a nice report that showed that real chocolate was growing really fast year over year and that vegan proteins were growing fast year over year. So he's like, oh my God, in his head, Leslie, my sister was making a baby of those two categories. Here's where they came to me. And it was June, 2018. And they came to me, both of them. And they said, we've got this amazing chocolate snack. We've done the research. We could operate the business, be the operators. We need someone to be the face of the brand, someone to come in and make noise, build the community. And they're like, you are amazing at that. You're already doing that with other businesses. And I said, nah, I can't come into the food space because it's so saturated. You go to the grocery store, Gage, there's 30 to 40,000 different products, mostly dominated by big pockets that could spend a lot of money for the shelf space and keep doing traditional trade marketing. So I rejected their offer in June, 2018. And then In July, 2018, the end of July, so two months later, I finally realized that I don't want to do what I was doing before anymore. I didn't want to continue to do it. I was throwing parties on college campuses, selling clothing, all that stuff. And I said, you know what? I'm ready to join as your partner, but here's my stipulation. I'm like, I'll become the third founder of this business. But I said, here's the thing. We are going to turn this into a reality show. I showed my partners a slide. I remember a PowerPoint slide of the ratings from Shark Tank from, from 2016 to 2018, I think it was. I showed them the keeping up with the Kardashians, the ratings on TV for that. And I showed them Elon Musk's social media following. And I said, if we want to win in this space, the product's phenomenal. That's one thing. That's great. But if we want to win, we need to make a triangle out of those things. We need to basically mix all those things. We need to basically make a reality show on entrepreneurship. We need to show the consumer the good, the bad, the ugly of building a CPG business because no one knows what it's like. So I said, if we raw, show the content very raw from a cell phone, authentic, real, we will create an emotional connection with the consumer where they'll feel like they're buying from a family member, a friend or a neighbor because they know us. And that was the epiphany moment where my sister, my brother-in-law were like, holy shit, this is genius. And from that day on, we started documenting everything. And I remember August, 2018, our first video was like August 4th. 
And from there, we have 35,000 different videos today of every moment that happened in this business. And we share it, man. We share crying, burnouts, firing, therapy sessions, milestones are like opening up, you know, a retailer or raising money. And that allows the consumer to be part of the roller coaster ride. I think that's why I like to call it a chocolate manufacturer and a media company because we have both. Yeah, I think I saw something in your social media that said part of the what makes it work is that just like a sitcom or a reality TV show or something else like that, all your followers are going to like have a connection with one of the founders or one of the characters in this story. By having your different personalities all just there and raw and real, you're going to attract kind of a wider base because everyone will kind of connect with somebody there. Well, Gage, you're right. It's exactly like a boy or a girl band, right? So you look at Spice Girls, you look at Backstreet Boys, you look at Jonas Brothers. Everyone could like at least one team member and one member of the band because you could always relate. So if the three of us are extremely different characters and we are in real life, we're very different. My sister is a great executor. She's a great CEO. My brother-in-law is a software engineer, very analytical, very driven on data. I'm a hype guy. Like I'm exciting, energetic. You then create different fans for different reasons, right? And then when they're fans of you, they become fans of the brand. And that's what Elon Musk does. Elon, whether you like him or not, he has a fan base that loves him, which then goes to Tesla and then goes to SpaceX and all the other things, Solar City, whatever he does. And then same thing with Richard Branson. And I think that you're going to start to see a lot more brands come out with front-facing founders that don't necessarily sell their company. So for us, we control our board. We control everything so we can make bold decisions. We're launching a music video in the coming months. Our investors probably would have thought we were crazy <laughs> yeah. spending that kind of money on that. But because we control what we do and we actually want to stay in the pocket very long in this journey is we're able to make those decisions and that keeps the consumer very close to us as a brand and have a friendship rather than a transaction. Yeah, play the long game. I often say that branding isn't like a snapshot or a logo or something like that, but it's it's more of like a three-part movie series where where the characters evolve over time and the the viewers kind of get invested and go along on that journey with you. And you're able to tell so much more of that journey by being like part media company. Whereas a lot of brands, they may have great story to tell, but they don't have the medium or the the talent or the personality or the whatever to share that story in a really entertaining, vibrant way. So bringing everyone along on that journey and, and showing the ups and the downs and everything else is a great way to like build the longevity in that brand and build the richness in it. So it's not just a package. It's not just a logo. It's just not, not just a product, right? Yeah. And I think that a lot of brands then go out there and they want to create the content. They truly do, but they don't want to spend on it. They don't want to invest the amount of dollars that you need. You can't cheapen out on content because the consumers in today's world know what's good, what's bad, what has love into it, what doesn't have love into it, and they get turned off, right? So for us, obviously at the beginning, we didn't have the budget. So we just did it so raw. It was just on our iPhones and all that stuff. But now we, we, we ended up investing a tremendous amount of dollars and time and resources into building a, a full media team that's videographers, editors, photographers, as if it's a reality show. And that comes off to the consumer as this company fucking cares. And that's why I say to everyone, don't necessarily do what we did. Because what we did was we went full throttle on showing everything, like a glass door, the personal life's gone. It's everything showing good, the bad, the ugly. But that's authentic to us. That's in our DNA. Brands need to find out what's in their DNA or what's authentic to them and then share that story. That story could be talking about being a sports brand and all about the sports love you have. Or it could be about the idea of ingredients and foodie and you tell that story. But it only comes off great when it's authentic to you. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That reminds me of Mark from I Want Organics. That he's just always talking about fitness and health and exercise and other things like that that ties into his personality and his interests and his passion, but also really relates well to the brand as well, the products. Exactly. And you mentioned some of the kind of inspiration of Elon Musk or Richard Branson, who are individuals, but then you've got this more of the boy band kind of thing where you've got multiple personalities in here. So, you know, with Elon Musk, people might either love him or hate him, but with Midday Squares team, because there's three of you, everyone's got someone to kind of attach to, but also having experience being both a solopreneur and having a partnership. I know that having partners also just brings a lot of magic sauce to the game because you all bring your different background, your different perspective, your different skill sets, etc. And you can really divide and conquer and really kind of come to the table being yourself instead of being more of a hype person that's stuck managing the books or something like that, which is a lot often what happens. Every individual needs to know their strengths. And if you're not playing to your strengths, then you're missing out. You're not optimizing. And I think that what's good about a partnership like ours is what I'm not good at, my partners are good at. And what they're not good at, I'm good at. So I remember when I first started, I put myself as the CMO because, you know, being a founder, you, you know, you want to have a management role, you, you own a big part of the company. And it was horrible. The first six to eight months was horrible. And I, I didn't know what was. I was, I was a horrible manager. I was just horrible. And I'll never forget. I said, I was in my therapy session with my partners. We were together and I said to them, I said, guys, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you a secret. And they're like, what? I'm like, I need to step down from that management role and I need to just go out and be myself. And they just like started clapping. They're like, we've been wanting you to do that for a long time now. We want you to realize it because that's not my strength. It was bogging all my energy down and I was getting, I was sad because I wasn't being able to be what I was good at, let my wings fly. The second I dropped that, I became the rover, which what you were talking about earlier which was basically I would rover around different departments, helping them out with sales, marketing, finance, this, that, which then evolved into the Rainmaker right now. So my role is called the Rainmaker. Basically, all I do is I build the network of midday squares. I build the community. I build the network. That's all I focus on. So I meet people. I get to know them. I become very close to them. And then I, I send them to different departments in the company. So if it's a buyer, I send them to my sales team. If it's an investor, I send it to my finance team. If it's a journalist, I send it to the marketing PR team. So what I do is I build a relationship before we do business with them. And then I bring them through my, my filter, my gut, and then I send them to the team. I think every brand needs a rainmaker because I don't need to focus on any operations. My brain's only focused on building the network. So I don't have any rules or I don't have anything to follow or anything to worry about. All I got to do is be out there, be present and get people to feel something and fall in love with us. And part of that falling in love is starting dance parties in, in, uh, <laughs> grocery stores and such. I've been seeing some of the posts of you, uh, dancing like in every kind of environment in the factory out in a parking lot or in retail you just kind of bring you to the to the game and that's a really good point that everyone needs to figure out what their special sauce is what their kind of zone of genius as the book the big leap kind of describes it you figure out what your special sauce is and you you find a way to get everything else off your plate so that you can just bring what makes you special to the world it's the most important thing if you want to be happy, man. If you want to have purpose, purpose is where the pursuit of happiness. If you find your purpose, you'll likely be happier just because you'll be doing what you love every single day. And I think 
people get bogged down. They do what other people want them to do. They do what, what the square box of society tells them to do. And it's like, if you cut that all out and you just say, screw it, I, I don't, I block the noise out and, and you be you, you'll finally start to find that inner energy that's almost unstoppable because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But it takes time, man. It could take 10 years to find it. It could take 15. It took me 27 years to figure that out. So I'm happy that I finally figured out what my why is, but there's still moments of shit, good and bad. But at least now I know that I have something to wake up to and feel purposeful to do. Yeah. And you mentioned once or twice the therapy sessions that you and your partners go through together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you need to become yourself, but you also need to understand the other people you're working with and encourage them to become themselves and have this kind of symbiotic relationship. So that seems to be a great tool for doing that, but I haven't heard that many leaders engaging that practice. So can you talk about that a little bit? So when we started, remember how I said that me joining the company the only way I was going to join was if they were to accept my analogy of becoming a reality show and entrepreneurship, which meant that they had to get out of their comfort zone and start filming their entire life. My two partners, they were skeptical about that. They're like, we're introverts. We don't really want to be on camera. But I said to them, well, I'm not joining unless we do this because this is what I believe will allow us to make the noise. So that day they signed a deal to, with me that they would do that and commit to it. And if it didn't work, then that would end this thing. And then I signed a deal that exact same day as well, which stated that I would be I would commit to therapy every single week, once a week, two hours with my partners, even in good or bad times. And I was like, well, I don't ever been to a therapist before. Well, I don't need one. I'm happy. I thought I was happy or whatever. And they're like, well, we can't do this partnership unless you do it because my brother-in-law, Nick, was already seeing this guy and already worked with him and had a previous partnership where he wished he had that. And there's some exec teams here from big public companies that use this this type of therapy and have this therapist named Dr. James Gavin, who specializes in behavioral psychology and communication to understand each other in partnerships. So I did the first two sessions and it, it was crazy. I remember the first session was like, it was like bullets being fired at me. It was hard conversations between me and my partners. And, and what the idea was, was it was a safe zone to have these hard conversations, to get to know each other on how we have to communicate with each other. How does one understand this? How does one react to that? And that takes a lot of work. It's a lot of work to put in an energy because you're giving a lot of energy. After four sessions, I became the biggest advocate. And till this day, I actually talk about it all the time because I'm like, everyone needs it. Because why? You need to understand who you're communicating with. You need to understand how to have these conversations. And especially if you're family, you don't want to have, you don't want to ruin your family relationship because of business. So for us, we would have failed this if we end this journey not being friends or best friends because, you know, we're best friends before this journey. So like family best friends. So I think that what this therapy does, it protects us, but it also allows us to understand each other in a very deep way. Yeah, I love that. The idea that you're able to create that safe space where you can give each other hard truths. That reminds me of a book I read a long time ago called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And the whole point of that book is that you can't have an environment where people aren't able to stand up to each other and give hard feedback or tell their truths or kind of battle and debate. And it's not about winning or losing. It's not about a competition of, oh, I'm right all the time or whatever, but it's about creating that safe space where you can all bring your perspectives to the table, knowing that at the end of the day, you're all still aligned as a team 
whatever decision is made, you'll move together in unison in that direction, but that you've got to have that safe space where you can be real with each other and bring up real issues. Otherwise, it, you just create a culture of yes men or, or whatever, and nobody nobody's afraid to speak up. And then bad decisions get made because of that. Yes, culture is the worst thing you can have in a business. It's literally, you need to challenge. You need to, if even if you disagree with something, either play ping pong with each other, rally so you could get back and forth. But when ego comes in and people just say, yes, tension then builds, that builds up so powerful that you can almost, it's permanently damaged, right? And I think that for us, a lot of the time, we might not agree with each other because we're very different characters, but we know how to agree to disagree and commit strongly. And we have very strong opinions loosely held. So we're open-minded, right? And before this journey, I wasn't. So that therapy has, I've worked so hard to become more empathetic, be open-minded, drop my ego wall. That's what happens. People don't realize the power of it. It's not like you sit in a room and vent. That's not what therapy is. That could be what therapy is for some, but a lot of the time what it is, is, is communication, understanding communication and how to use it and how to interpret it. And that's why partnerships need it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in partnerships, I think it's hard to run a business and it's harder <laughs> to run a business with someone else who you don't always agree with. So having systems to where you can disagree, but still move forward, I think is super important. With that said, you know, this idea of this show everything kind of model, like a reality TV show is very unique. I think a lot of companies are are out there trying to be transparent these days, right? Like show a little bit of behind the scenes, talk about where they failed on their goals, publish sustainability reports that show the good, the bad, the ugly, et cetera. But this show everything of like literally film everything, record everything. You've you know put together a podcast, you have videos in your social media, you, you've kind of went all in. So how did that strategy start from a, hey, we need, to, we need to put ourselves out there. We need to do this reality show. How did it go from that to actually making it real and deciding what mediums you were going to go for, like the podcast and Instagram and other kind of tools that you're using? Yeah. So when we started, the goal was, again, show everything. And that meant everything. Like, good, like I said, good, bad, ugly. And the first medium we chose was Instagram because that at the time in 2018 was pretty hot. And we wanted to use that as a day-to-day storytelling. So show it on the stories and then show it on, you know, IG television when that came out for longer former content. Then we entered into LinkedIn and podcast. We wanted to touch into more of the corporate world. The podcast was a place to literally meet the three of us, be my two partners and just sit down and have a real conversation for an hour about anything. It could have been about, you know, something that happened or something that we did. So it wasn't like a, we're telling you how to do things. It was like, this is what we just experienced and how we feel about it. And that became a very popular platform for us. And we stopped for a bit because it, we were so overwhelmed with so much stuff going on. We're actually starting season two again, finally. I think our first season had 36 episodes, but our season two is going to start in the next month or two. And that's going to go back. And what that does is you allow people to go into an ecosystem of very depth with the business. So they don't just see pictures of the midday square bar. They're seeing everything that goes on. So they're getting into the brains, they're getting into the heart and the brain of midday squares. And I think that that allows us to play a very great game. And this year we're entering into TikTok. So we're going to play with TikTok and then future we're going to play with YouTube, like longer format content where we can have mini docu-series and stuff like that. But again, you can't just do everything at once. It takes a lot of time. And if you're going to half-ass things, it's not going to work. We have a motto here. It's actually in a neon bright sign in front of our office that says, If it's not fuck yeah, then it's no. And that goes with everything, whether that's content, 
whether that's something with marketing, whether that's customer experience, whether that's creating the product, the R&D. So we follow that tremendously, that mentality. And like I said, if we're not going to just put out content for the sake of content, and we're not going to launch a platform for the sake of launching a platform, we do it when we're ready and when we can execute. That makes sense. And do you have different audiences in mind for those different mediums or platforms? Because I think a lot of brands out there totally get that they need to connect with their consumer more to drive sales, right? But what you're doing is also like telling your story to other entrepreneurs, other people in the industry and showing how difficult it can be. But consumers might also be interested in that. So do you have like a different audience for each platform or are you just putting it all out there and just see who it resonates with? Every platform is a little different for us and different audience. We veer the content usually for each platform to be a little different to subscribe to the consumer that's watching it, how they want to watch it, what they care to take away from it. Like our podcast is obviously very deep into the depth of like strategy and stuff. But then Instagram is like the day-to-day of what's going on here at the office, like the dramas, the fun, the cool, the bad, the good. And then like LinkedIn's more like, okay, like corporate milestones, corporate failures we have. I think that that's how we think it through. Otherwise, it's not really complex. Like for us, like there's not one central strategy. It's like we need different storylines, but overall same story just for different platforms. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And you talked about earlier how most companies know that maybe they should be doing this kind of stuff and want to do it, but they just don't invest the money into it. And where my mind goes with that is you're going to have to spend that money one way or another, either spend it on content and make your brand really engaging and therefore you don't have to pay for ads or you're going to have to pay for ads because nobody's looking at your content or maybe pay for placements in grocery stores. You know, There's always like this pay to play model. So do you have some sort of metrics or something that you look for to prove to yourselves at least that investing in the content is working or is the right path versus like having to pay for it later down the line? Well, we believe that the right path for us at least is paying for building great content. And here's why our community builds. So it fuels them. So basically they become more attached. They become more part of our family. And I think that that consumer tribalism has a dollar value worth that we can't really just define it because it's very hard. But if you look at brands like Lululemon who have great communities, they're trading at a 12 plus multiple. And then you look at a brand like Kellogg's or something, and they're trading like a one to three big difference. And I think the difference is the the consumer tribalism aspect. And we just monitor this by how much engagement is it? How much are consumers becoming fans? Do they care about the stuff that we're doing? They invested emotionally in the brand. And that's how we monitor it. We don't care about numbers really. I think it's more of, do we see them falling in love with it? Do they feel something? Do they feel something by the content we create? And if they don't, then we stop that type of content. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I know there's a lot of brands out there who are getting more into either having a celebrity endorser or paying influencers to post something in their feed because they don't have their own kind of personality, their own following, et cetera. But what you're all doing is is building yourselves and the company itself into an influencer. And the magic there, whether you're paying someone else to do it or becoming the influencer yourself, is that when you do launch a new product or a new flavor or a new whatever, all you have to really do is put it out there to your Instagram community, your email list, to wherever your like biggest audience is. And then the sales just explode from there. Whereas a traditional company that doesn't either pay an influencer or have influence, like they launch a new product and it's crickets, right? And they've got to go out there and they've got to hustle. They got to talk to all the retailers. They got to pay for all these ads. They got to do all this kind of work like that. And like you said, it kind of snowballs. Like the more good content you put out there, the more followers you get. The more followers you get, the easier it is to sell new product, et cetera. And I feel like that could be part of 
your kind of hockey stick growth that you're going through right now is sure the product's probably great, but maybe more importantly for that kind of exponential year over year kind of growth is because your community keeps growing and it makes it easier and easier to just get the word out there and move product. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think you said it right. We're trying to celebritize ourselves. We can control that microphone. We can have a microphone where we could utilize it in a good way. And that's powerful. When you don't have to rely on other microphones, it's way more powerful. From a data standpoint, you can get data quickly. From a product launch standpoint, you can create buzz. You can get excitement. You could get information. You could make people feel something. You know, I think the CPG world is turning into celebrity packaged goods <laughs> rather than yeah. consumer packaged goods. And I'm curious to see where that goes in the next 10 years. And if that's going to succeed or not, I don't know because authenticity will play a big factor in that because the world's moving into more authentic. The consumer's moving into more authentic. They want authenticity and they want to be able to emotionally connect. So I don't know if the celebrity packaged goods is necessarily the answer. Like I said, I'm curious to see where it goes. We don't have any of that. You know, we do work with influencers on stuff. They're great. They're phenomenal, but it's to, in, it's to interact with their communities and understand their communities and then bring them into our ecosystem. But again, we're focused on building our own characters and our team's characters to become the microphone. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I have seen so many more celebrities just moving into this space, not just as a investor or endorser or something like that, but they're seeing how valuable these CPG companies can be deciding to jump in the space for their own and like create the tequila <laughs> brand or a gin brand or, you know, like a food brand or whatever and jumping in both from like an impact standpoint so they can use their influence for good to make a product that's better than all the garbage that's out there or because they also see it as just a great investment, of course, to kind of diversify their assets. So anyway, we will see how how that continues to grow. With that said, how do you all go about staying true to yourselves. So like you mentioned that your other founders are introverts, yet they're having to <laughs> put themselves out there for this show. So that was probably a little uncomfortable, but maybe also a growth moment. And maybe even showing some of that introversion in your media is great because someone's going to relate to that, right? But how do you go about, and you said maybe it's the, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's hell now or, or whatever, whatever that statement was. But how do you go about deciding what's going to work, what's not going to work and what makes sense to publish? I think everything that we decide to publish needs to make us feel something when we watch it. It needs to make us have an emotion, whether that's sadness, happiness, some sort of sense. That's when we know we want to post it because if it makes us feel something, it's going to make someone else in this world feel something. And I think that's the authenticity factor is, is if it doesn't do it for us, we will not post it. We'll scrap the entire thing. Same thing goes with launching a product. If it's not to our likings, we're not letting it out. And that's where the consumer trusts us, right? Because we're not there to just bang out and we're not just there to push, 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 sell through people. We're actually building something where we could actually make impact. Like we spread so much positive energy in this world that they need it. It's like we actually love doing that as a business that we have an ability to do that. So like for us, we monitor everything by making sure it makes us feel something and then we publish it or put it out there. You know, that's, I feel like that's one of the best benefits of being a founder led company where a founder like created a product, they believe in it, they're putting it out there. They are the, the audience, they are the consumers because then you don't have to rely on all this third party consumer research or analyze data to see what people care about because you are the people you care about. You know what you care about. And if you do what you care about, others like you will care about it. So that's a great filter as you're kind of all still involved. And you said, you know, you're trying to go for the, the long haul here and breeding that culture into all your people is probably going to be important for as the company continues to grow and you're not able to like touch every little aspect of it. 
it's a unit thing. It's the entire company feels that they need to know that we support them. We support them being unapologetically themselves. We support them knowing that this is not a company that's being flipped. You know, it's a long play here. We're building this, a very strong foundation, an extremely strong one. So our team that we're hiring now, all our execs and all that stuff, it's coming from a long play. It's not coming from the short-term thinking. It's like, how do we get this business to $100 million in the next five years and then keep investing, 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 investing till we build a billion-dollar business and we keep going from there? And I think that that is our strength, actually. It's not a weakness, it's a strength. Yeah, and you mentioned not taking investors and I know that part of staying true to yourself has been literally turning down offers or you know, going through difficult moments of figuring out how to redo your packaging when uh, cease and desist shows up and you've got to figure out how to move through that, those challenging times or make those difficult decisions. But somehow like just having that strong compass helps you move through those processes and you even like document it and share it and like tell that story, which I think a lot of companies would shy away from it and just be like, oh, look, new packaging and like not talk about why they did that new package. We had an offer from Hershey's last year and then we got into some like seasons assists with them and Kellogg's. It was a whole thing. And we ended up documenting and sharing it, like you said, and that was for our community to see. It wasn't to bully them or show them that they're, they're mean. It was to show us what we went through to have to change our package. And that's part of the journey. And when you're focused on building a long business, you make decisions differently. You focus on different decision-making process. For example, you're not just focused on virality for content creation. You're focused on depth and reality and what's going on so you can make people feel something. When you're focused on product, you're focused on how could you make this the best fucking product and not shortcut ways. You don't want to shortcut your things. When you're hiring, you're looking for immense amount of talent that's going to be here for a long run. And I think that at the end of the day, we're going to be able to to show the world there is a new way to do this. Like There is a new way to get to the top and do it while being founder-led and still having control of the board. The only people that in tech, a lot of founders still control their companies at the big level. That, I think that's the only industry you really see it in. You know, like obviously, whether you're a fan or not, I'm not a fan of a lot of these companies in the sense where, you know, I don't get involved with the technology companies, but a founder like Mark Zuckerberg has kept control of his company at the highest level possible. And he's the, he has super voting shares and all this stuff where at the end of the day, his vision is still remaining his vision at the highest level. What are they, a billion, $100 billion, $200 billion company? So you have that, you have the Dorseys of the world, you have all these people where they stayed in the pocket for so long as the face and the, the power. You haven't seen that in the food and beverage world where a lot of the time, like I said, there's these amazing offers from these incumbent brands where it's a lot of money on the table and they take it, right? And it's hard. I don't know what that feels like at the highest level, but what I do know is that we're having so much fun on this journey gauge that we don't want to get rid of this journey. Like we would, I wouldn't know what I'd want to do next. Like I have purpose, man. My partners have purpose. My team has purpose. Everyone's doing what they love. And it's like, I don't know how many opportunities you're going to get like that in your life. So why not keep it and take advantage of it? If, especially if you see that there is a huge amount of opportunity, huge globally, forget about Canada, US, but globally. Yeah, absolutely. One example that comes to mind is Bob's Red Mill, how, you know, Bob's stayed involved with the company for the entirety of the company and he's the face of the package and even when it did come time for him to retire he gave the company to employees instead of just selling it and letting it get watered down right so i think there's those kind of companies where it is founder led but the founder stays involved i think they not only does the brand remain high integrity but i think the company itself the company culture and everything else stays truer to its vision whereas when you 
have a company that you founded and 10 years in, five years in, 20 years in, whatever you sell it, like you said, it's inevitably going to change the culture and remove a lot of that kind of magic that you built into it. Yeah. Maybe the products are still the same, but the energy is different and like the vibe is different. And like over time, it just kind of gets watered down step by step by step until it's barely recognizable again. Yeah, man. I'm so curious to see, do I think it's necessarily going to work a hundred percent? I don't know. We don't know. It's a new playbook. You know, what we've seen is when you get to that 50 to hundred million revenue mark, typically the founders sell their companies. They get massive offers. I'm curious to see what happens after that. If they stay in the pocket, how big can they go? Kind went pretty far. Kind went pretty far. And then they sold to Mars for like $5 billion. But how much impact can we make? How much change can we make? How much can we influence the way of doing business and showing that there's not one playbook? You don't need to just do it this way. You don't need to be that person. You don't need to be that person. You could be yourself. And what happens when you're always yourself? And we have a saying that we always follow, Gage, which is when you're on the side of the majority, stop and reflect and go always the opposite side. Because at the end of the day, we want to be an outlier. Whether that's good or bad, we want to be an outlier. We don't want to be in the middle. And that's the decision making that we'll do is not being part of the majority or where the herd's going. You got to go the other way. Yeah. Like you said before, the big corporate led brands are playing it safe, right? They they don't want to be the outlier. They want to keep their job and they want to make the safe decisions that'll move the needle 1% instead of taking those big, bold moves that could move it 100% in the right direction or tank the company. But, But when you're in control of it and you're passionate and you have that kind of, you're following your heart and you know what's right, you can take those bigger, bolder risks. As a way to wrap up, I'd be curious, you're a few years into it now and you've had some crazy growth. You've learned lots of lessons. Is there anything that comes to mind that was like a really surprising lesson learned or like a hard lesson that learned that you could kind of share that story, that experience so that others can learn from your journey? Don't yardstick. You know, through my last year, I went through a phase where as we were growing, I was consistently yardsticking to other brands, other media publications, awards. I was getting so caught up in the noise that my love for the business ended up falling. And I almost went to a path where of no return in the sense of, I almost fell completely out of love for what I was doing. And when you do that, you burn out, right? And what ended up happening was I was so consumed by all the noise out there, the media, the this, the comparing, the, you know, I'm not doing this, but that person's doing that. They are there, they're that event that I went crazy in that sense. And what I did was I ended up realizing it and saying, there's a better way to do this. A, you block out the noise. And if you can't block out the noise, accept it, put it through your system and filter it to turn it into positive energy, not negative energy. Because with the world of media, social media, media, you see everything going on. Does it mean it's real? Likely not. But your brain tells you, you got to be like that. You ought to be like that. You got to do this. You got to do that. So I think any entrepreneur or any person working out there in anything Do not yardstick. It's so dangerous. And when you stop doing that, you start to feel free. That's beautiful. I I definitely get in the uh, compare and despair game (laughs) a lot where you see someone do something amazing. You're like, dang it, why didn't I do that? Or or you see like this crazy growth of a brand or something like that. And you're like, dang, what are they doing that I'm not doing or something like that. But, But to your point, there's a lot that you're doing that they're not doing. And if you're taking the long view, as long as you're staying true to yourself, your path will be unique. It will be your own. And that's what the world needs of you. The world doesn't need a cookie cutter of Elon Musk or a, you know, a fake Steve Jobs or whatever. They need you to be authentic and follow your own path because 
that's going to create a magical journey out of its own that other people will be inspired by, maybe learn from, but you know, hopefully they follow their own path too. So I love that advice. 100%. Great. 100%. That's amazing. Well, I know you've got a lot to do, so I'm going to let you get back to it, but thanks for taking a little time out of your day to share your story and some, some of your wisdom and experience and unique perspective with the Evolve community and keep rocking it. I'm loving following you. Y'all rock. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Jake or Midday Squares, visit MiddaySquares.com.